Please be seated. Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Once again, we proceed through Matthew's gospel, picking up where we left off last week, specifically Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. This is God's word. Listen to it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose none of, one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as we face this passage, our hearts come before you with fear and trembling. We are confronted, O oh Lord, with the contents of our heart. Who can stand before your word this morning? And so we come to you in humble re reliance upon your spirit to bear us up, to illumine our hearts to ourselves, and to bring us to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've spent any time looking at last week's, this week's, and next week's passages that we'll cover uh, in our worship services, if you were to look at them out of context, you might think that these passages had been written in the past 50 years. You might think because Jesus is talking about anger and he's talking about lust and he's talking about divorce and these three things, these three sins are so rampant in our society that it's such a timely message and yet can we believe that it was preached 2,000 years ago? It seems that our society is full of people who have anger management problems. Sexuality and lust are commonplace. It's everywhere. Divorce is rampant. Everyone in this church knows someone who has gone through it. Anger, lust, divorce, and every sin that you can think of have been around since the fall of Adam. There is nothing new under the sun. As Hebrews says, there is no temptation that is not common to man. But it doesn't lessen their impact on us and on our lives. And while divorce, murder, theft, and other sins are external and can be seen by others, anger and lust, these are internal sins. They're very difficult for outsiders to detect. Almost impossible for you to see what is going on in the heart of another person. 
But just as Jesus taught in last week's passage that unrighteous anger is equal to murder, he teaches in this week's passage that lust or sexual covetousness is equal to adultery. And Jesus makes it clear that every external sin has its beginning in the heart. It has its beginning in the center of our beings and who we are. It has its beginning in the hidden places we don't want anyone else to see, and especially not God. Being angry enough to murder is equal to murder because the heart is where murder is conceived. Being uh, uh, Looking at someone with lustful intent is equal to adultery because the heart is where adultery is conceived. And the external acts, the external penalty of these acts of, of adultery and murder carry the penalty of death in the Old Testament. And Jesus teaches here that the internal sins can carry the penalties of eternal damnation, eternal death. If drastic measures are not taken to stop the sin in our hearts. Without some act taking place to cleanse us from sin, we have no hope and we will perish. So I would ask you to think on this as we work our way through these verses this morning. Our sin, even in its most hidden form, requires drastic measures, namely the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his triumph over sin and death in his resurrection. Our sin, even in its most hidden form, requires drastic measures. Namely, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his triumph over sin and death in his resurrection. And we'll look at this passage in two parts, verses 27 to 28, which I've titled Sexual Covetousness, and verses 29 to 30, Drastic Measures. So let's look first at verses 27 and 28, sexual covetousness. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All of us have read these words before. We're very familiar with these words. We've read them numerous times. But do not let the familiarity of these words allow you to neglect what they're saying. Don't let them soften the blow of these words on your hearts. Let me say it again. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, adultery certainly took place in Jesus' day. Without a doubt. Read John 8. It was probably not as rampant as it is in our day. But it was looked upon much more harshly then than it is now. And Jesus again reminds people of what they have been taught by God. He did the same thing in our passage last week. He reminds them what they've been taught. That God, when he gave the Ten Commandments to his people at Sinai, said, You shall not commit adultery. So everyone understood adultery to be a sin. But what about lust? What about lust? Lust is difficult if not impossible for humans to detect in other people. You know that it's in your own heart, but you can't see it in someone else. You can't tell by observing a friend that he or she is struggling with lust. But God can. Second Samuel teaches that God looks on the hearts of people. 
And in these verses, we get a full understanding of what God meant when he gave the seventh commandment in Exodus chapter 20. Now, there has been a lot of talk as of late. You've probably heard this about the authorial intent of the U.S. Constitution. What does it mean when the Constitution says a specific thing? What did the, what did the framers of the Constitution mean by this when they wrote it? Sometimes it can be very difficult to get to that understanding, to try to get back to what people were thinking, what the intent of the author was, especially when it was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But here in these verses, in the verses we have this morning, we get a picture of the authorial intent of the seventh commandment. In our passage, the divine author himself teaches us That you shall not commit adultery also means that we're not even to have sexual thoughts about another person who is not our spouse. This is the author of the word himself who says this. And in saying this, Jesus draws the line from the 10th commandment which says you shall not covet. He draws a line straight back to the 7th. You shall not commit adultery. Because that's what it is. When you lust for another person, you're coveting them in your heart. And the Greek word that is translated in our passage, lustful intent, uh, is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament. When when it translates the Ten Commandments, the word for covet, covet is the same word used here in our passage. But the Tenth Commandment uh, against covetousness is not nearly as enforceable as the commandment against adultery. Adultery in the Old Testament carried the death penalty. Covetousness did not. But Jesus teaches in verse 28 that the heart is the same. Whether a person commits adultery or just imagines it, the heart is the same. The road to adultery always begins with coveting someone who is not yours to have. Listen to what World Magazine columnist Andre Sue has written about this. She writes, nobody ever wakes up one morning and decides to become an adulteress. You must imagine, rather, Elijah's fist-sized cloud over Mount Carmel that swells into Ahab's mighty rainstorm, or the quiet sea gestating in a woman weeks before she even knows she's pregnant, or perhaps a serpent's egg. There appears one day a thought that wasn't there before, a whisper of the heart, of disappointment, discontentment, A vacuum where once abode gratitude. Add the chemistry of idleness and afternoon soaps. The unrelenting barrage of unthinkable suggestions that become suddenly thinkable. And your best friend's well-meant counsel, you deserve better than him. Adultery never starts with a meeting in a hotel room. It always begins with what takes place in the shadows and the hidden recesses of sinful men and women's hearts. There's a progression from what is in the heart to what a person ends up doing. And if a sequence of opportunities arises and all along you do not check your temptations, you do not check your desires, you may end up committing grievous sin against God and against people you love. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, touches on this progression. He says, Whatever, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We take action based on the desires of our hearts. But we need to say here that coveting, to covet itself is not evil in itself. You may legitimately and rightly covet the prayers of other people. You may covet time spent with family and loved ones. There's nothing wrong with this. But you cross the line when you desire that which does not or cannot rightfully belong to you. That's when you cross the line. When we've talked about the 10th commandment, let me read it to you. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You can see this in Exodus chapter 20 verse 17. Covetousness is difficult to detect because it takes place in the heart. But the command not to covet should not be ignored. You cannot ignore this command simply because it's difficult to detect. This commandment calls upon us to examine our hearts. It calls upon us to look inside and to detect those areas of envy, those areas of discontentment and dissatisfaction with with what the Lord has given to us. Jesus, in this passage, clarifies what he meant when he originally wrote the words, you shall not commit adultery. But by clarifying, he also shows the impossibility of keeping this command. He shows the impossibility of keeping sinful people, keeping any commandments at all. We cannot do this by ourselves. We cannot do this if we're still in sin and misery. But Jesus does not leave us without hope. We're not left here to wallow in the mire. We're not left here alone. Where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. And he succeeded completely. He actively obeyed every single commandment that was given in the Old Testament. Every commandment that he wrote, he obeyed. He perfectly kept the law. And as our substitute, Jesus did this in our place. He did it for us. He did it in our places. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 say this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus Christ came to stand in our place and to keep the law for us, which is impossible for us to keep. And He did this so that you and me might be called the children of God. Of God. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 29 and 30. These verses show the drastic measures that must be taken to defeat sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now some of you may have heard of the early church father, Origen. This man emasculated himself because of these verses. Because of his interpretation of this passage. Was this truly what Jesus meant when he said these words, when he preached this? 
Did he truly mean that you should maim yourself physically if a member of your body causes you to sin? Let me ask you this question. Would a person be made incapable of lusting if he gouged out his eye or cut off his hand? Would that suddenly make you unable to sin? No. No. Did Jesus mean this literally? No, because Jesus knows the heart better than any person. And he knows that taking these drastic measures cannot cause you, cannot keep you from lusting. The pain might be excruciating. It would be excruciating. And the missing eye and hand would serve as constant reminders of the sin that you are trying to avoid. But the ability to lust would still be there. Paul gets to the core of these verses in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul understands what Jesus taught. He teaches us that what causes us to sin is what's in our heart. And this is what we must put to death. Those earthly desires. The cutting off of the right hand and the gouging out of the right eye graphically represent to us the putting to death of these earthly desires. The putting to death of sin in us. This is what we're called to do. The Puritan pastor, John Owen, spoke of putting sin to death in terms of warfare. He said, we need to recognize the enemy we are dealing with and resolve that it is to be destroyed by all means possible. The battle is a vigorous and hazardous one that deals with the issues of eternity. This is how serious our sin is. That we use any means at our disposal. And the graphic terms that Jesus uses to describe how sin should be fought are meant to show the seriousness of that sin. This is not something to be trifled with. The lusts of your hearts are not something that you should ignore and overlook. The smallest, most hidden sin in your heart is so serious in the eyes of God that you ought to be willing to give your right, right arm in order to be rid of it. The smallest, most hidden sin in your heart is not something that you should mess with. It is like unstable dynamite. It will blow up in your face. It is extremely dangerous. And this is why Jesus said it would be better to lose your eye or your hand than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Unless sin is dealt with decisively, hell is precisely where it leads. But for those who believe in Jesus Christ, or for those who will believe in Jesus Christ, sin has been decisively dealt with by Jesus' death on the cross. If cutting off a hand or gouging out an eye was truly the way to deal with the problem of sin, Jesus would have had no reason to die. But Isaiah 53.8 says, he, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus was cut off so that you and I would not have to be. Jesus was cut off in the body so that you would not have to cut your hand off because it has caused you to sin. Jesus was cut off. He endured the pain in the body so that you would not have to. 
Rather than losing a hand or an eye, his hands and feet were pierced. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Your sin and my sin is so terrible that in order to be free from it, it was necessary that God's Son die for us. And this is the point of what Jesus says in these verses, in verses 29 and 30. If we could truly atone for our sins by cutting out our eye or cutting off our hand, then Jesus did not need to die. But he did come and die. He did. Jesus was obedient, even to the point of death. But as we have already prayed, his death was not the end of the story. Have you ever wondered why we gather to worship, we who call ourselves by the name of Christ, gather to worship on Sunday, the seventh day, excuse me, the first day of the week, rather than Friday, the sixth day of the week? probably understand that we don't keep the Jewish Sabbath the seventh day. Why did, it, why did it change? Up until the time of the early Christian church, the Sabbath was on Saturday, which is the seventh day of the week. But very early in the Christian church, by the time that Paul visited Macedonia and Greece in AD 57, Christians were already gathering for worship on the first day of the week. Just look in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. But why not on Friday? the day that Jesus was crucified. Why don't we worship then? It is because Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And so every single week we celebrate Jesus' resurrection because this is his victory over sin and death. Every single week. It is a privilege that the church has set aside one day out of the year. But this is not enough to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Jesus' death on the cross is indispensable for our salvation, but without his resurrection from the dead, his death has no meaning. His death was pointless. His death was like any other Roman death on a cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, then your only option in trying to deal with lust or any other sin is to cut off the offending member. But still it would be to no avail. But still you would have no hope. There are many, many people in this world who have loved what Jesus taught. And they have a deep appreciation for what Jesus Christ did on the cross. They see it as a self-sacrifice, and they see it as a model for what we as Christians should do in sacrificing of ourselves for others. But they just cannot get beyond his resurrection. To them, it is implausible, it is irrational, it is unbelievable. But Scripture teaches that faith and belief in Jesus' resurrection is crucial to salvation. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, everything we, that he taught would be a lie. And his death on the cross would be meaningless. Without the resurrection, you and I have no hope of overcoming any sin in our hearts. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, we cannot be raised 
We cannot be raised from our own death, our own death in sin and trespasses. But we are here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has been raised from the dead. He has been raised. And the same divine power that was at work in transforming him from death to life is at work in our own hearts. God's power which brought Jesus back to life is the same power that brings us to life for the very first time. When you were raised from the dead, when you are regenerated and you believe in Jesus Christ, you have gained the victory over sin as well as death. You do not have to face true death, which is eternal death. But you must remember that you have done this not in and of yourselves. It was done for you by Christ Jesus. And when you have reached this point, when you have turned to Christ in faith and repentance, then you can put to death the sin that remains in you. You can put it to death. You can crucify your earthly desires. God's Spirit leads you into battle against your flesh. God's Spirit has equipped you with the weapons that you need to fight against this enemy, these sinful lusts in your heart. With the Holy Spirit's strength, you can overcome those sins which used to have dominion over you, used to have you in a death grip. You are no longer a slave to them. You have been given a new master. Now, being a Christian does not mean that you won't have struggles with sin. You all know this as well as I do. You will continue to struggle with your fleshly nature. Before you knew Christ, you didn't care. <laughs> Before you knew Christ, you didn't struggle with your fleshly nature. It meant nothing to you. But now that you do know Christ, you're in a, you're in a daily struggle with sin. And the fact that you struggle against it is proof. The fact that you struggle against sexual covetousness, the fact that you struggle against anger, uh, ang thoughts of anger, proves that you are in the fight. It proves that you have been made regenerate. And the fact that you repent when confronted with your earthly desires shows that your heart is alive in Christ, that you have been raised with Him. You have been raised if you have believed and repented. And now, in being raised, in being raised from death to life, you can win the battles against the desires of your flesh. You can have victory over those sins which seem so unchangeable and undefeatable. You can win because Jesus' death and resurrection have already won the battle. And he has given you the victory. And for this reason, we may rejoice. Let us join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the battle has been won. You have fought it for us, Lord Jesus. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would cause us to rest upon you and to receive you and all that you have done for us. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would again and again call us to renewed obedience to all that you have commanded. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number 276.
up from the grave he arose. Please stand as we sing our hymn of response, hymn number 276. <clears throat>